Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Friends, today we're going to talk about something that I've personally lived and that a few people that I'm close to have also lived and then um, actually one client friend who is actively living it right now, which is how do you get a puppy when you have an adult dog who is who has dog directed aggress- aggressive behaviors? So we might call these dogs dog aggressive, uh, maybe dog reactive, but generally speaking, they've got issues with other dogs. And, you know, if you're a dog person, you maybe don't want to only have one dog um, and you'd like to add a puppy at some point. Um, Iggy is 11. And when I got her 11 years ago, I was faced with this task because my dog at the time, Kelso, was pretty severely aggressive to other dogs and especially to puppies he really hated puppies and so I had to you know build a plan consult some colleagues and go forward and they became good friends um Iggy and Kelso never had an altercation um past the one time that my barrier failed when Iggy was brand new but generally speaking there is a way to go about this and there's a way that you can keep everybody safe and also set yourself up for success. So let's go through some of those things. The first thing you obviously need to do is consider your risk factors. So how safe or unsafe is this adult dog that we're talking about? Is this dog one that has done extensive damage to other dogs or no? And in my case with Kelso, The answer was no. He had punctured two dogs in his life, and that's two in a lot of dog altercations that he had. So I considered him relatively safe as far as how much damage he would inflict upon a dog that came into his space. Um, If the dog has actually severely harmed or maybe even hospitalized other dogs before, that dog is a much, much higher risk factor and you're going to need to take that into consideration um, with your management techniques. I also want to ask, can this dog befriend 
other dogs. So has he successfully become friends with other dogs before? And in the case of Kelso, again, the answer was yes, with careful introduction, as well as just careful selection of the other dog. He had quite a few dog friends, um, actually, and was very tolerant of them and even enjoyed playing with them. So I was in pretty good shape as far as assessing the risk. The risk of him actually causing bodily harm to the puppy was relatively low. And the chances of him accepting and even befriending the puppy were high. So even though he had an extensive history of aggressive behaviors with other dogs and would, you know, guaranteed attack a puppy if it approached him. I felt like this was not an out of the question thing for me to pursue. If you have a dog that has done extensive damage to another dog, but he has also befriended other dogs in the past, then this is also not out of the question for you. You're just going to need to take considerable safety measures, probably for a long time. If the other dog has hospitalized other dogs and has never successfully integrated with another dog, then your chances of that dog actually integrating with your new puppy are low. And you probably want to accept that you may be living in a divided household going forward if that's your choice. So the next thing that I want to consider is how easy can we achieve the kind of management we need. So assessing risk tells us how much management we need. Obviously, the higher the risk, the more management required. And we always need to look at our household and decide how likely is it for me to actually achieve the level of management that I'm after here. And things that factor in there would be number of dogs in your house, the more, the higher that number, the higher the risk of management fails. And then how many humans are in the house? Because the higher that number, again, the higher the risk that management fails. That one we actually know from some data that has been um, collected on dog-to-dog aggression in the home studies. The more people in the house, the higher risk you have because it's just more moving parts. It's just more people operating the management system. The more people you have operating the system, the more likely it is that somebody's gonna screw up in the system. So if we've got kids, spouses, roommates, lots of dogs, basically the busier the household, the tougher this is gonna be to pull off. Not impossible, certainly, but understand that if you're in a high-risk situation and then you also have a high risk of management failing because of your household, you may want to be reconsidering adding a puppy. Um, But if you've got maybe it's you and your partner um, and maybe one or two adult dogs and your risk is, you know, present but not outrageous, shouldn't be a problem for you if you just follow some simple steps. So I want you to remember first when you're going about this that it's going to feel painfully slow. If it feels painfully slow, you're going at the right pace. (laughs) Um, I'm always kind of amazed when people have puppies that are fully integrated by, you know, on day one, when their dogs had issues in the past. That's always surprising to me. People do pull it off. I want you to take more time than that though. So I would allow for a level of desensitization to occur with barriers. So just as a sidebar, 
put your management in place before the puppy gets there. So act as if the puppy is there for you know a couple of weeks before he arrives, and then that way you will find management holes that you don't want to find when the actual risk is present. So you're going to allow for some desensitization by using barriers. These dogs are only going to see each other through a barrier. If you have a dog that is likely to breach the barrier or even grab a puppy through the barrier, you know, it depends again on the level of aggression we're talking about, then I wouldn't even allow physical access between the barriers, only visual access. And if visual access makes the adult dog go crazy, then only scent and hearing-based access should be allowed for a period of time. The first time that your adult dog meets this puppy should not be, you know, right away on day one. It can be through a barrier in your home if everybody's acting kind of normal and fine, but I like it to be outside um, in nature so that the other dog is not the most exciting or interesting thing around. To make that safer, you could use a buffer dog, meaning an adult dog that's wonderful with puppies that will gravitate towards the puppy. And I would also use a muzzle on your adult dog of concern. So barriers are up in the house. They only experience each other through barriers for a nice long period of time. Basically, you know, when you say how long, I say as long as it takes for them to not care that the other one exists anymore. And that could take a very long time and it could be a short time. With Kelso, and I wish I had better um, documentation on this process, but what I recall is that their first time, and my photo evidence supports this, Kelso and Iggy's first time being uh, loose together outside, she was about four months of age. And the first time they went on a leash walk together, parallel though, she was younger. She was probably three months of age. Um, and then other than that, it was all barriers inside the house. As I mentioned at the top, um, Iggy breached the barrier once. Kelso never did. He would never dream of it. But Iggy, as a little tiny um, six pound, I mean, she was so small, puppy climbed a four foot X-pen kind of on the regular and um, also knocked down a baby gate that obviously hadn't been placed appropriately. Um, and so Kelso did get her once. He actually, he pierced her ear. <laughs> There's a little tiny hole in her ear. It bled a lot. She screamed a lot, but everybody was fine. I had spray shield nearby, which was one of my safety measures that I'm going to recommend for you. And I was able to break it up quickly. So then, you know, from there, from the gated community in your home, you're going to maybe start to crate them near each other during sleeping times um, or in the car can be a really good place to do that. As Again, as long as no aggressive behavior is happening through the barriers, they can be as close to each other um, with the barrier there as they are comfortable. And then when they don't care about each other anymore, you're gonna go on these leash walks together. And it's, it's really great if somebody else can walk one dog and you can walk the other so they don't have to be near each other. And that's just kind of mutual togetherness. That's basically similar to being inside. It's another desensitization approach. You could also potentially do some mutual station training, which is something that I do for my barky lungy dogs, something I do for dogs that have present conflict in the home. If you're going, oh my God, a puppy can't do station training. Of course they can. Um, puppies are great at stations. Just plop them on there and feed and your adult dog can. 
do some more active station work. And what do I mean by station training? They're both on stations with a reasonable distance between them so that nobody's freaking out and you can gradually move those stations closer and they're both being actively trained. They're not just expected to stay. They're doing sits and downs and spins and paw waves and they're getting cookies for every single behavior they give. You can also do some kind of some interactions once you feel like they don't care about each other anymore. But I would, again, depending on your risk factors, utilize some safety precautions. So keep a can of spray shield nearby. Um, Put a muzzle on the adult dog or have the dogs on leashes. So um, with Kelso, he was not in a muzzle when he was introduced to Iggy, but she was always on a leash. Um, And the reason is he was never going to approach her. So (laughs) understanding your dog's behavior is important as well. He was never going to approach her. He didn't want anything to do with her. I just needed to keep her from approaching him. So she was pretty much on a leash in the house or behind a barrier. Up until about six months of age, um, because I didn't want... I didn't want them to have problems together. Uh, I promised Kelso actually that if they couldn't get along, that the puppy would go back or would go live somewhere else. And that was a heartbreaking prospect for me, but it was the deal that I made him because I didn't want his quality of life to change just because I got a puppy. And it it had just been he and I for so long and I knew it was gonna be hard on him when I got a puppy. And so that was the promise I made and I kept it. And I never put him in a situation where he had to live in a divided household um, as long as he lived. And so as you go, don't take anything for granted. So understand that we need to maintain management as long as necessary. What that means is you're going to listen to your gut here. If you're saying, I think it'll be fine, don't trust that. That's really not good enough. You need to be pretty certain that it's going to be fine before you remove that management piece. And that that may be that there are management pieces in play for life. And that's got to be okay too. Um, I don't know anybody who lives in a multiple dog household who doesn't have at least some level of management. For instance, my dogs all got bully sticks this morning and they were not loose together with bully sticks. They were in crates. That's management. That's not, um, you know, living in a divided household. That's not hard for anybody to do. That's just me minimizing the possibility that two dogs are going to go for the same bully stick at once and create a problem, right? So don't take for granted that the dogs are ignoring each other or even being nice to each other or even being friends. Listen to your gut. Know when you need to put those management um, pieces back into play. Know that every time you remove a management piece, it is a trial period. It is not, okay, and now we don't have baby gates up anymore. It is, let's try a few days without baby gates and maybe just a leash on the puppy. See how that goes. If it's going great, maybe you can try to remove another management piece. But making sure that you stick with as many management pieces as you need to to keep everybody safe for as long as you need to is important. I got Edgy when she was two months of age. Like I said, there was a lot of management until she was about six months of age. That's four months. A lot of people think that's way too long and way too much work, but it was so worth it to prevent conflict between the two of them while they got used to each other. 
Because they turned out fine, you guys. They were good friends for the rest of Kelso's life. And that is so, so valuable. So before you get the puppy, put those management things in place and find the holes in your system. Muzzle train your adult dog if he isn't already. Train him some good station skills so that you can put that to use as well. Train him a nice recall and some other good redirection cues. And then plant spray shield all over your house, have it in every single room, and get used to those management pieces before you bring the puppy in. You can also use visual cues to yourself if you need to. So if your management is extensive, like the dog is pretty high risk and you need two barriers in play all the time, maybe a gate and a muzzle or two gates or two doors, which is usually what I recommend if the dog is very high risk is to have two barriers that the dog has to breach in order for a mistake to occur. Use visual cues for the humans to remind them, right? So if you've got a door that needs to stay closed, put a sign on that door that is brightly colored that reminds the person to make sure that they are doing what they need to be doing with this door in particular. If you've got a door that maybe doesn't have a window in it and it could be an issue if you open it and find two dogs in the same space, put a sign on that door that says, you know, is XYZ dog out or, you know, where is this dog? Putting up those visual cues for humans, um, you guys, that's how my friends in the zoological world uh, prevent people from getting killed. So if you're taking care of tigers or lions for your day job, they will easily kill a zookeeper if the keeper is found in the same enclosure as that animal. And so there are a lot of locks, a lot of barriers, and a lot of visual cues for the people to remind them um, what they need to be reminded of. So get used to your management plan, find the holes in it, and fix those holes with cues for the humans. And if the dog is super high risk, put more management in place, put more barriers that the dog has to breach in place. I hope this was helpful for you guys. And if you are looking to add a puppy to a household that is a potential issue, this is something that I consult on and I would love to hear from you. All right, we've got some Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Jennifer. On one of your chats, you were talking about socialization and mentioned that Border Collies have more of an issue with novelty than socialization per se. Um, I have an intact 15-month-old male Border Collie who's my first Border Collie ever, so I have definitely noticed that he notices everything in his environment, especially new or out-of-the-ordinary things. What are the ways you teach your dogs that novelty is fine and possibly even cool? So Jennifer, I'm not positive where I said um, where I said that. I could have said it in the socialization episode. What I mean to say is that socialization is about novelty and it is about the dogs experiencing novelty, maybe experiencing a little stress, and then the experiencing the feeling of recovering from that stress. So it's very normal for your border collie, especially at that age, to be hypervigilant. The reason that they are such amazing working and sport dogs is because they notice everything. So you have to accept that if you want a border collie to do sports with, you have to help them cope with life and that that will not be easy because when you are a hypervigilant creature of any kind, 
life is a little bit hard for you. I don't actively try to teach my dogs to seek out novelty. I do actively introduce them to novel situations in which they are safe, in which they can win. So one of the ways that I like to do that is food puzzles. So I'll present them with at first a very, very easy food puzzle. And as soon as they figure it out and get the food, they get the payoff, wonderful. And that might be just some kibble inside an egg carton or something like that. And then I will make the food puzzle a little more challenging in an, in a way that introduces novelty to my dog. So I might put the food puzzle on top of a tarp. And now the puppy has to walk on the tarp to get to the food puzzle. And then he figures out the food puzzle and then he goes from there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in the next session, I might put the tarp on top of an X-Pen. So now the puppy has to walk on the tarp on an X-Pen to get to the food puzzle and so on and so forth. So I'm presenting the puppy with things that he can win, that he can figure out that are new and novel and different. And then I might move the puzzle to a park, to my front yard rather than my garage, to my backyard, that kind of thing. So you're just introducing novelty and making sure the puppy can win in novel situations. Um, and you're going to be just fine. Next one from Rendina. I had a question related to your Wednesday night chats where you talked about puppy socialization. You mentioned letting the puppy bark at something unfamiliar if they want to and then allowing them to either go towards it or away depending on how the puppy was feeling about the thing. What about things that what about things that are going to move away from the puppy? Isn't the puppy going to think they're barking at the thing makes it go away, such as barking every time the mailman comes and then the mailman goes away, so the puppy learns to bark to make the mailman go away? Should you handle these situations where the thing is going away on its own differently? So this is a tough one, Rendina, because I do say that you should allow them to kind of bark or have whatever reaction they're going to have. But the reason I say that is because any intervention on your part is unlikely to help them work out the situation. What my end goal for socialization is, is that my puppy believes any situation he's in, he can figure out. I want him to trust that he can handle anything. So that's why I try not to intervene very much. But you absolutely can create a behavior chain of bark, bark, thing goes, thing goes away. What you are not doing in that case is helping the puppy feel better about the thing overall. And that's what I would handle more. So rather than, um, you know, walking your puppy in a park where there might be any random number of things walking by that he's going to bark at and think he made move, plant yourself in the back of your car on your tailgate with your puppy right next to you where your puppy can watch the world go by from a safe place. If he feels safe, he's not gonna bark. And that is all assuming that this puppy is uncomfortable rather than begging the thing to come closer. Because if he's begging the thing to come closer by barking, then the thing walking away is a perfectly fine response. So it's always very dependent. There is no um, you know, list of rules for socializing because it has to be driven by the puppy. But with those puppies, I would help them observe the world from a safer place for a while until they feel like they don't need to bark anymore. Noah asks, please, please, pretty please, uh, positive or just fair approaches to education, educating dogs about snakes. Um, and I believe I answered this in one of the other uh, Patreon Q&A sessions, but my short unfortunate answer is that I don't have one. I don't know um, of a protocol that is proven that teaches dogs to avoid snakes. 
I don't know, and I just, I didn't quantify that I only know of programs that I wouldn't do, like the traditional e-collar types of programs. Um, None of them have the data that makes me happy. So none of them have data behind them that I'm aware of that says dogs who went through this program do not get bitten by snakes, even though they are around snakes. So what we really need in that area is research. I heard Ken Ramirez is consulting on a project about it. And if he is, then there's going to be data and it's going to be interesting. So I I look forward to that, but it is not here yet. Kristen, I'm taking a class for Foundations of Running Contacts. This is all body awareness and reinforcement strategies, preschool stuff. Can you define your experience using location-specific reward markers for your running contact? The instructor has suggested that I use a release cue to get the toy over a specific marker to get the toy. And is concerned that if I use a marker word, then I'll be rewarding the position um, of the reinforcement, I think she says, and I'm not, sh- I'm not sure what your instructor means there either, Kristen, rather than of the behavior that was just performed. So w- with, um, markers, basically agility people have been using quote unquote release cues as marker signals for a ages. And th- this is no different. So the instructor is more comfortable using a release cue to the toy than a marker signal that releases the dog to the toy. They are not different. Okay. You might have more specific information built into your marker signal than is um, built into the release signal. That would be the only difference. Um, so they should not actually be operating differently at all, if they're if they're both well timed, if they're both given at the same at the the time that the dog hits the contact or meets criteria. So I hope I answered your question on that, Kristen. Um, let's see from Rianne. I haven't had a puppy in over a decade, and I'm looking to finally get one, possibly within the next two to three years. I definitely know a lot more now than I did then about sport puppy training but I do not want to let analysis paralysis take over. What skills do you think are essential for sport puppies to learn? Um, The big thing is that you're aware of the fact that you may get into analysis paralysis. Try to avoid that by simply taking things one day at a time um, and taking good notes and understand that there's time. You don't need to rush. If the puppy hasn't learned something by six months and then you learn that maybe you should have taught it, prior to six months, you can still teach it now. It's not a huge deal. I think sport puppies need to learn about their reinforcers first and foremost. They need to learn about how to obtain reinforcement um, and work for a variety of reinforcers. I think that that's the first thing they need to know as far as being a sport puppy. And then they need socialization. They need to be very comfortable with other dogs and with people and with loud noises and all of those things. So focus there rather than on specific skills. All right, Anna, if you're using a clicker, is it best to put the dogs who aren't working in a room far enough away that they won't hear the clicker? Will the sound of the clicker confuse the dogs that are waiting for their turn if they remain in the same room? I don't. Um, I train both of my dogs at once. I put one on a station. I work I work one for a few minutes and then I switch them out and I might use a clicker and I might use other marker signals and there can be an occasional question from the dog that is not working about was that marker for me and they learn very quickly that no markers are for them when they're on the station so that's what i do Um, i have had dogs before that heard a clicker and kind of started to go insane in the other room and 
I actually, again, think stationing one dog helps that dog to see that this clicker is not for her um, rather than, you know, panicking in the other room. Jennifer has a question about the podcast um, that I recorded with Megan Foster, where we discussed negative reinforcement. Um, and we, we talked about a dog who needs 12 or whatever attempts to get the desired behavior and then get a jackpot and the trainer then moves on to something else. Uh, Jennifer's question, you said you'd argue the correct behavior was built using negative reinforcement rather than positive reinforcement. I'm so foggy on this concept of negative reinforcement. I get that you're removing rather than adding, and I've been that person who you described in that example, though I don't want to be. Jennifer, me too. It's okay. Is it possible to discuss this more and talk about it in this scenario that you found prevent operating in negative reinforcement realm? To make sure that you're operating in the positive reinforcement realm, and first of all, we don't get to decide really what quadrant we're operating in. Quadrants tend to be not super helpful to talk about because you're never operating in one alone. So if I'm operating on neg on positive reinforcement, I'm also utilizing negative punishment because if I'm giving reinforcement, I'm also withholding it. So it's not helpful, I think, to talk a lot about quadrants. So put that aside for a second. The difference that I want to impart is I want the dog to do a thing, get paid, do a thing, get paid, and have a high rate of reinforcement while we're acquiring behaviors. If the dog has to try something 15 times and then finally get a big payoff, then what you're likely utilizing, um, what is likely operating here to reinforce that behavior in the future is relief rather than that jackpot. So when you think negative reinforcement, think relief, okay? So that's, that's I think, the best real human term to describe negative reinforcement. It is reinforcement through relief. When I check my email, I am not positively reinforced by email. I am negatively reinforced by email because when the inbox gets number gets smaller and smaller, I feel more and more relief. And so it is um, helpful to me. If your dog is seeing agility like the inbox, your dog doesn't have, in my opinion, the right feelings about agility. So let's flip it. What if every time I checked an email, I got a dollar put into my account? Now we're talking positive reinforcement, okay? So rather than that big, oh, my inbox is empty at the end, I'm getting a buck every time. Man, I am operating on a different, in a definitely different realm here. So that's what I want you to be thinking about, Jennifer. I hope that answers your question. Let me know if it didn't. Okay, final questions. We've got kind of several questions from Mary about my fence barking Wednesday night chat. Um, essentially, she's asking, is it even fair to have, is it even a reasonable expectation um, for my dogs that are behind a fence to not react if another dog is walking by also losing its mind and vice versa? So you've got dogs in a yard, and you've got dog, a dog being walked past the yard. And if the dog being walked past the yard is being barked at from behind the fence, can I expect that dog to not react? I would say you can expect it with a lot of training, but not just naturally, no. Um, because if someone's yelling at me, it's gonna take a lot for me to just kind of turn the other cheek, right? So it would require training for sure. And then vice versa, it's the same thing. If a dog's walking by and barking at your dog behind a fence, is it fair to expect them to not bark? 
you know, I'm not sure. Um, I would say probably not. And then Mary was asking about, um, I had mentioned solid fencing, and I do understand that you can't, you know, there aren't very many fence options that are truly solid that I can usually see through the cracks, but using solid, more solid fencing will help you rather than using just chain link. And if you do have a major problem, you could put up plastic sheeting, um, that will prevent the dog from actually seeing what's on the other side. So hopefully that was helpful to you as well. Thanks you all for your questions. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.